In the following live session recording, Jonathan Gray, President and CEO of the Georgia Baptist Foundation, leads a session entitled, A New Idea for Funding Ministry. The listener will learn how your church can fund ministry with resources above and beyond the typical tithes and offerings. Let's join Jonathan now. Uh, my name is Jonathan Gray and I serve as the President and CEO of the Georgia Baptist Foundation. Nathan was supposed to be here giving this presentation, but a buddy of his was getting married and asked him to be in the wedding, and I decided that I'd be gracious and come teach for him so he could go be a groomsman. So, uh, but uh, you'll want to have an opportunity. Some of you may, if you've been around Georgia Baptist life uh, in South Georgia for a while, you may know the name Ray Sullivan. Ray was our director of development for South Georgia. Ray retired in December. Uh, he's doing well. He and Dale uh, have a little 33-acre blueberry farm in Hoboken. And if you're coming through Waycross or Hoboken, that area, about July, I'm sure he'd love to have you help him pick some blueberries. And uh, so then uh, Ray retired in December, and then Nathan came on to take, kind of take Ray's place. He's serving South Georgia. Um, I'm not giving him full responsibility of South Georgia yet. He's still a little, little young, got a little learning to do, but doing a super, super job. Young guy, loves the Lord, leads worship in his church, and uh, I'm excited to to have, have him on board. So if um, I may be able to help you or Nathan may be able to help you depending upon where your church is or if you happen to have traveled down from North Georgia, Sam Warner is our Vice President of Development and serves really anything kind of north of Macon um, up there. So what I'm going to do this morning is two things. One, I'm going to tell you just very briefly a little bit about us and what we do and how we think about things. And then I'm going to show you four or five ways that we're trying to help churches get resources or to do ministry that's a little outside the box. Um, it's not your typical gifts that you would receive in the uh, offering plate. And you may find those very interesting or you may find those very boring. It just kind of depends on what you like or what you don't like. But I'll try to try to at least give you enough information uh, to make you do that. I'm gonna log into the internet. I got to talking and didn't create my login. Just one second. I know this probably isn't your topic here, but mm -hmm. far as online giving and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. They have stats as to what the trend is. I mean, in my church, most everybody's 70 or above. They, they're scared of that stuff. But I realize that younger people, yeah. they don't write checks no more. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I, I was preaching one Sunday probably about a year ago and made a reference about, you know, my tithes and writing out my checkbook. And a young guy came up to me and said, what's the checkbook? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, even though I consider myself young, uh, I'm not near as young as, and, uh, as you used to be. That's right. And, <laughs> and think a little differently than some of the the younger generation let's see if i can get this pulled back up here i'm sorry that we got i should have had it already going um yeah so let me i'll answer your question while this is all booting back up so what we are seeing is somewhere between 10 and 40 percent depending upon the makeup of the church um todd uh mcmeachin with life with generosity is here right and i don't know if you've had a chance to talk I Todd. um and i don't know what he's telling out there versus what he's going to present in here and when, when he's the next session in here he actually shows some of the giving trends among the millennials and Gen Xers. And, you, know, you can kind of see a little bit of that. And then he also goes over the giving platform. So you may, you may or may not want to participate in that. One of the things that to let y'all know is that he is making available, they did it last week and this week, um, for the folks that are interested in the online giving, uh, he's making available with no subscription fee and no setup fee. So the only thing you pay is the processing fee. So 
if you if you are not familiar with the online contributions, the credit card and the debit card companies get about two and a half to three percent of the gift, and then also there's a there's a couple other fees in there, so you're really only making about ninety two to ninety five cents on the dollar. Um, but what we have found is ninety five cents on you know the dollar is better than no dollars, no, no dollars, <laughs> and so. Um, so, but, but it's a really great deal and they've got a super product. We started using them a year ago and I've been making them available to our institutions uh, like the, the colleges and the children's homes and the Baptist retirement communities, Georgia and Baptist Village and all those. Um, it's, it's a good product and it actually has one that I've seen is a crowdfunding piece. So if you're familiar with like GoFundMe and some of those other things, to be able to do crowdfunding for uh, some of your different ministry projects is a cool concept. All right, but you're right, it does depend on the age makeup of the church. But you'd be surprised at that. We have a, um, we have a fund for uh, Tacoa Assembly, you know, up in you know, the Baptist City in Tacoa. And one of the ladies that's a volunteer up there, she's probably, I'd be rude to guess her age, but I'm guessing she's 75 to 80. She called and wanted to know if she could set up a reoccurring gift online for the conference center for that fund that benefits the conference center, so it's n it's not as uncommon as you know. You have to go with the times now. That's right. All right, let's get started. So let me tell you just briefly about who we are, George Baptist Foundation. We exist basically to uh, uh, strengthen gospel efforts uh, through managing funds and actually raising funds. Uh, we do that by raising funds through estate stewardship and some of these other ideas that I want to show you here this morning. And then we also want to help uh, individual families through estate and plan gifts and some of the things I'm going to show you this morning uh, really uh, just uh, benefit the Lord's work. Let me show you, I'll do it down here right quickly. I need to put this in a chart because I always end up telling. And uh, let me show you how, what we do. So if you think about a person's total giving potential, you know, their ability to actually support the Lord's work, we divide their giving potential into basically three categories. The first one is income. The next one is what we would call disposable assets, and the last one is non-disposable assets. So if you can think about it, most of our churches, our missions, offerings, everything we do is off of annual income gifts where people are given a tithe or statistically 2% of their income to support the Lord's work. This disposable category is those assets that people have that they don't feel like they got to hold on to through retirement. So that, it might be stock, it might be uh, timber, it might be, who knows what it may be, but it's something they don't feel like they got to hold on to. Um, with those, what you're finding is if a church does like a capital campaign to build a building or buy a bus or somebody like that, somebody gives you $5,000 or $500,000, it's, once again, it's stuff they can let go of. This category over here, which is the largest category, is what we call non-disposable. That means they feel like they got to hold on to the income until they pass away, or the asset until they pass away. And, um, but once they pass away, then there's a great opportunity there for them to benefit the Lord's work. So if you want to know kind of what we do, we do a little bit in this space, which you'll see in some of the things we're going to talk about this morning, but this is really where we spend most of our time, trying to encourage folks to be good stewards of those non-disposable assets so that when they go on to be with Jesus, they benefit the Lord's work with those assets. So sometimes it's just easier, as I talk through some of these things, for you to see the bucket, so to speak, and to know, you know how we look at it. So when we talk about helping families through estate plans and plan gifts, Estate plans and plan gifts are the ways that we help families give those non-disposable assets. And so I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that as we work through this morning. 
As I've mentioned to you, you probably know, we support, we have over 1,650, almost 1,700 accounts. Those accounts represent almost everything you can think of in Baptist life. Um, from all the way from the International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, down to the six seminaries, to our colleges, to all of our Baptist ministries, to many of our associations, uh, as well as our churches and other things. So we, we are very involved in, and one of those funds would be for Mission Dignity, like what we talked about. We're trying to basically elevate the conversation on stewardship. We feel like mm -hmm. stewardship is a, um, a word that people are not using anymore. And so we're, we're really just trying to help people begin to think through that again. And so we have basically are focusing on these principles of faithful stewarding. And so what we're trying to challenge people to do is to realize that their stewardship is rooted in lordship. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a management issue because the Lord controls everything and we're you know, serving under the Lord as a lordship issue. Uh, the next thing you see there is faithful execution. So uh, I'm sure all of us have had good ideas and good intentions, but to actually do something about that takes execution. So whether or not it's from our perspective, you know, executing a last will and testament, so you actually get that done because a lot of people procrastinate that, or whether it's execution in the sense of just simply writing out your check, putting the offshore plate, or whether it's execution of volunteering your time and saying you've had it on your heart that you ought to help out with the kids' ministry, but actually going and doing it is completely. So it's, it's putting it into action really is what it is. Seize an eternal perspective. This world is not our home. We all know that. And, uh, and uh, so I'll give you an example of that. When we work with folks that do estate plans, um, you know, there's, there's all types of giving intent. So I'll give you an example where I, was, where I was going with that, is that my wife last July was diagnosed with breast cancer. And the American Cancer Society is, is really a great organization. I've been amazed at the support that she has gotten from the American Cancer Society. And having been a family member, someone very close to me that lived through cancer, and y'all may be in a similar situation, you know, I have nothing more love for them to find a cure for cancer. But the reality is, is even if they find a cure for cancer, that doesn't, that doesn't deal with the eternal situation the folks are going to be in. And so I try to push people to think through, okay, is your giving, your stewardship, making a temporal difference or is it making eternal difference? Because the Cancer Society, the alma mater, the hospital, the Humane Society, we're watching and seeing all of these temporal organizations receive billions of dollars while the local church doesn't receive it and there's no eternal perspective in some of our church members and what they're doing and what they're giving. Considers more than finances, it's more than just treasures, it's time and talent as well. And then it gets multiplied in community. So what we have found is that when God lays on people's heart a passion to do things. I kind of like the cooperative program is that when a lot of people come together to make a gift, then it can make a difference. So I'll give you, for instance, what I mean by that. Um, for those of you in churches, you know, if we could have 30 years ago, or even longer than that, well, let's just say 30 years ago, if we have, could have begun to create a culture in our churches where it just basically encouraged and challenged every member to leave a tithe of their estate, 90% could go to their family, but 10% could go uh, to the church. If we'd have done that for the last 30 years, you think about those of you who are pastors or, or maybe have friends in the church, of all the people that have passed away that you knew that were believers, the difference that, that would make. Um, and so it's, it's once again, it's just those little gifts of 10% to the state could really make a big difference in a lot of our churches. And so we're trying to get people to think through that. Kind of along the same lines as not only the principles, but just how does the process work? What we find in people is that the Lord inspires them to do something. We try to help direct them in a way that's the most tax efficient, best way for their family. And then they've got to basically take action by making the gifts, signing the documents, uh, whatever it may be. And, and, and I'll tell you this, it's interesting. You know, the, 
if you've ever experienced or uh, ever studied experiencing God, you know, they talk about finding out where God's at work and joining mm-hmm. him. And, and I joke and say, you know, when I, when I first started doing this type of work 15 years ago, you know, I was young and ignorant in many ways. Um, and I thought, well, the Lord just used me to really motivate somebody with a good message or a, you know, a good sermon or, you know, when we do these presentations, I try to get really good illustrations and they, you know, just really, really, you know, thinking that, you know, I could, in a sense, persuade. And uh, what I found after 15 years that the largest gifts that I've ever been a part of, God had already laid on the heart of that donor to make a gift and I was just there to help them facilitate it. And, and my guess is that there are people sitting in your pews that God's already laid on their heart to be charitable. Because we know that's one of the, the spiritual gifts, that God's laid on their heart to be charitable or to be generous. And they're just looking for someone to give them direction or help them take action. And so that's kind of where we see our role is to give them direction and help them take action. So what are some new ideas that uh, most of our churches are not thinking of or not considering? Well, the first one is a planned gift, and I've already mentioned to you a little bit about what that looks like. But think of it this way. A planned gift means that they give the asset to ministry or to your church, but they receive income until they die. So they can't, it's not like a gift they can give to the capital campaign where, you know, it's, say it's a stock, they give the stock, the stock's sold, and it just goes directly into the fund. It's got to be set up in such a way to where they're receiving income off of that gift for their lifetime. But when they pass away, the income stops and the balance of that gift then goes to the ministry. Um, And so, once again, we call it a non-disposable asset because they can't just completely give it free and clear. They've got to hold on to that income portion. But what you find, one of the ways to do that is through what's called a charitable remainder unit trust. And and I tell folks, uh, I come from, my father was in the car industry my entire life. And so a lot of my illustrations are car illustrations because that's, um, just the world I grew up in. And so I tell folks, when somebody says, oh yeah, I've got a trust, that's like somebody saying, oh, I got a car. <laughs> and there's about as many different types of trusts as there are cars. And, and the way those trusts work, some of them are pretty simple, kind of like the Pinto or the, you know, the, the baseline model, you know, and then some of them are pretty sophisticated, like the Cadillacs and the Lexus. And it depends on your situation and how many bells and whistles you want to what your trust is. But if somebody says, oh, I got a trust, you know about as much about their trust as you do about them just simply saying they got a car and who knows what kind of car they have. And so I'm gonna give you some examples of a few pretty typical ones, but just know that in kind of like a car, you can add power steering or you can add you know, power windows or you can do heated seats now that, you know, there's all these kind of caveats depending upon the situation that uh, that make it a little bit different. So, one of them's called a charitable remainder unit trust. And uh, I'm gonna actually jump twice and then come back to that slide. Now, the charitable remainder unit trust, give you for instance, is this. They receive income for life for up to 20 years, uh, avoids capital gains tax on appreciated assets, uh, receives immediate charitable tax deduction, and then establishes a legacy for future ministry. So let me give you an example of that. Greg, we work with a guy, I love him to death, he's about 92 now. In 1960, he pastored in Columbus, Georgia, or in the 60s, and uh, one day a gentleman knocked on his door and was selling him stock that this guy was selling for 15 cents a share, and the gentleman's name was Mr. Amos. Does anybody know who Mr. Amos was that sold stock in the 60s in Columbus, Georgia? Cookie guy? No, everybody thinks it's Famous Amos, but it's not Famous Amos Cookies. You ever seen a little white duck on a football commercial? 
Mr. Amos was the founder of Aflac. Well, he bought stock at 15 cents a share in the 60s, and of course, you know Aflac has done very well. Well, he's in a situation because Aflac is continuing to grow and just basically their company model, they don't pay a huge dividend. So he's got all of this stock in Aflac that has all of this value, but he's not getting any retirement income off of it. And so now that he's in his retirement years, he needs basically to turn that into money that he can live on. Well, if he sells it and puts it in something that generates money for him, he pays huge capital gains tax because he bought it for 15 cents a share. And now it's 42, 45, whatever it is I haven't looked lately to see what it is a share. You've got people sitting in your pews that have appreciated assets. That may be in stock, it may be in real estate, it may be in other things that they can't efficiently turn that into income because they're going to pay tax on it. What a charitable remainder unit trust does is it allows people to basically make the gift, avoid the capital gains tax, and even get a tax deduction on a portion of the gift. So it's a huge tax advantage, and then they receive income. We typically set it up at 5%, although there's some wiggle room in there. Can't go less than 5 but we set it up between 5 and 6% to either pay them and their spouse for the rest of life, or to pay for 20 years if they give it to the kids or other things. And so just know anything that has capital appreciation that doesn't produce income, and you've got retirement folks that that need income, there's a way to do that. And then when that income stream matures because the person passes away, then it, it comes to your church. Um, and we also use that in what we call a T-crut, which basically means it's the same exact thing. The T means testamentary, which just means it's set up in a wheel. And so let me show you how that can work right quick. Make you spin just so you don't fall asleep on me because I know I'm talking a lot. So a few years ago, I had a guy come to me. Um, and his estate was worth $400,000. And basically, this is, I'm rounding for make the math easy, but basically he had $200,000 is what his house was worth. And then he had $200,000 in, a, I think his was a 403B retirement plan. Um, that's what his assets were. And he came to me, and he's one of these guys, and you've, you, you know, you may even be one, where he's probably every year or every other year for the last 30 years, He's gone somewhere, either in South America or Africa, helping build churches or orphanages or whatever building needed to be built, he would go and do that. And he just had a real heart for doing missions. And so he came to me and said, I've got these resources. I, want to, I don't want to leave the kids out, but I want to do something for them. And so, but I want to do something for ministry as well. You got any ideas? And so I said, you know, we kind of talked about it over a process of time. Basically what he did is this 200K, he said, I want to give a tithe of my estate outright to the church. So he gave $40,000 of this 200K to the church outright. That left $160,000 here. He put the $160,000 in what we call T-Crup, which is just a testamentary charitable land unit trust. He had, I didn't tell you, he had two kids, two girls, for basically for 20 years to pay at 5%. If you do 20 times 5%, that's 100%. So they, over the course of 20 years, got 100% of this, this amount. Actually, got a little bit more than that because we try to invest it to make about six plus. All right, so they got over 20 years, got 100% of it. Then he came over here and he said, okay, I'm, gonna give, I'm just going to give them the house. So they each got 100, my marker's down here, basically got 100K apiece. Why did, he, why did we set it up that way? Two or three things that make, make sense for you. The 403B account's going to have an IRD tax on it. It means the federal government's not going to let you put it in a qualified account and then pull it out and give it to your kids without somebody paying tax on it. 
So we gave the taxable account to the church and to the charitable trust to avoid as much tax as we possibly can. We gave the house to the two kids outright because they receive it on a stepped-up basis, and there is no tax. So we've we've created a fairly tax-efficient model here, and in the end, his kids both got you know hundred thousand dollars a piece as a lump sum that they could go buy the Corvette or the bass boat or whatever. But being girls, they probably wouldn't do that. I don't know what what would ladies. They, they bought new furniture for the oh, living room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because I just saw somebody had one of those the other day and I was like, what in the world is that? But they, they got the outright gift of $100,000, which is a nice outright gift, and they got another hundred k plus in the form of income for the next 20 years. And then when he passed away, you know, now, rather than giving $40,000 to the Lord's work, he's given, you know, 200 plus thousand dollars to the Lord's work all through a trust of this type. And so that kind of gives you an example of just some of the little stuff that we're able to do from that standpoint. So if you've got anybody that has appreciated assets, um, that's way. I'll give you another quick example and then we'll move on to the next one. What we're finding is, it's interesting, generationally uh, people's assets change. So what I mean by that is give you for instance the the builder generation you know, and most of those folks receive some type of pension. So they didn't have a 401k or IRA or 403b if you're in, in a nonprofit sector. They had a pension from the company that they work for. Well, all those folks are about to pass away and most of those, most of our boomers now don't have pensions. You might if you work for the government, if you work as a teacher or something like that, you'll get a set retirement account. But if you work any kind of corporate job and you're a boomer, most likely some of those pension benefits are going away and now my generation beyond it's all in 401k IRA type stuff well what we're going to see over the next 20 30 years is all those 401k IRA 403b assets are going to be taxed and so there's a great giving opportunity in those assets as we see people's wealth change another way that we see people's wealth change is um, and I'm sure it's gone on for years but it just seems like it's we're, we're seeing more of it, say, in, in the last five years than what we were seeing, say, 15 years ago. And basically, I'll give you another example. I, we have a gentleman that we work with that he owns 13 rental properties. He's bought those rental properties over the last several years. On his taxes, he's depreciating those rental properties. He's now reached a point to where he's pushing 80, and he's done all the work on the rental properties and all that kind of stuff. He's reaching 80, he's got these rental properties, the rental value, I mean, the, the property value's been depreciated, so his cost basis is basically zero. So once again, he's got a capital gains tax problem if he were to sell them. But he's now to the point where he's just tired of fooling with them and working on them and keeping them up, because, you know, he's had too many birthdays and he just he doesn't, feel, he doesn't feel comfortable climbing on the roof anymore, to be honest with you. And so he's come to us, and about every three years, he gives us a house. We sell the house, actually he doesn't give us, he gives one of these trusts that I'm talking about a house. The voice capital gains tax gets the income off of it. We can either rent the house and pay the income, or we can sell the house and invest the money in paying the income, but either way, he's getting the same income uh, as what he was when he was basically, had the house as a rental property, but he's basically doesn't have the work anymore. He's gotten the tax advantage, and the reason why he gives us one every two or three years is because he can carry over his charitable deduction up to five years and so he's saving on the money that he's making from other places because he's getting a tax deduction off the house that he gave. And so every three years, we, we're now on our third house. I don't know if he'll live long enough to give us all 13 or not, but uh, that's, a, that's an exit strategy for him 
you know, we're probably going to see a million dollars go to his church and other ministries um, as a result of that. And the cool thing in his case, he's, he, you know, he's, he, I, he is not extremely well off, uh, but he's doing okay. And because of that, he's been able to take a portion of the income that he's received from these rental properties, go out and buy a life insurance policy and what we call a wealth replacement strategy so his kids aren't missing out. So some people are saying, like, he's going to give all that to the church and not give his kids anything. No, he's going to give his kids income from the life insurance policy that once again is tax-free and both his kids going to get a million dollars the church going to get a million dollars and it helps him in the long run while he's living because he gets the income he doesn't have to worry about the rental properties and he gets the tax income so just trying to whet your appetite for what that looks like and, and how that can look and that's so that's what a uh, charitable remainder unit trust will do now then, let's go on to the next one well, before I go there any any questions on that I know y'all probably thinking this is more information than what I really want to know on this kind of detailed stuff. Y'all, is it stock related as far as risk for those funds? It can be really, uh, we choose to invest in some of it in stock market for what we manage, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be. So just like the guy that had the rental property, mm -hmm. you know, we for a while there, we basically rented the house and he got the rental income. It wasn't invested in the market at all. I've got another gentleman that I work with that he's chosen to invest in timber. And so he, it, we've had to be somewhat creative. It's a combination of timber and more liquid assets because timber is not liquid and it's got a, you know, the, every 15 years on, you're only going to get money except for on a hunt lease, <coughs> that kind of stuff. So, but it doesn't have to be. It, that's the easiest way to do it, but it doesn't yeah, have sure. to be. Okay. Yeah. What does have to happen is that depending upon how it's set up, well, the federal government will not allow us to pay out less than 5% unless it's what they call a net income only. And I'm getting in the weeds a little bit here. Um, and so one of the reasons why a good portion of what we do does have that equity exposure is because you can't step out into a fixed income only space and pick up 5% or better because interest rates are so low. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it kind of depends on how it's set up. But there is some flexibility there, yes. Well, I, I was just thinking from a risk perspective for, mm -hmm. from my parents or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How exposed are they compared to a regular mutual fund or stock market? Yeah, and for most of our clients, it's about the same. Okay. Uh, is what you'd find in a regular, you know, okay. it's it's in a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds for most of our clients that do that. Sure. Okay. Um, good good question though. All right, so let's transition to another idea. This is called a donor advised fund. Have you ever heard of a donor advised fund? Well, let me tell you what a donor advised fund is. To, I'm, I, I like to shoot straight and tell you. To be honest with you, a donor advised fund is, is, has more advantages to the donor than it does to the charity. But because it has such good advantages to the donor, uh, we try to make them available because we think, once again, most of these assets our churches are not getting anything of. So if we can create an opportunity that's an advantage to the donor, then the church benefits from it, then we're basically trying to facilitate that donor to be charitable and, and to be generous. The way a donor advised fund works is, think of it this way, whatever it may be, but uh, think of it in the sense that, uh, that what a donor advised fund does is it allows an individual to make a gift in a certain tax year, but not distribute it to the charities except for over a period of time or to multiple charities. And so it's, think of it as kind of like a holding place where you get tax benefit, but then they can send it out later when they choose to. And so uh, it, that's kind of the way the strategy works. So I'll give you for instance, 
Um, if you have an individual that has a tax event, maybe they had a great year from a business standpoint. So we actually helped somebody just, it was funny, we were working, but you know, if y'all don't know, the convention closes between Christmas and New Year's. But I tell folks the foundation doesn't close because people are making year-end gifts, mm -hmm. you know, so my staff doesn't like it. That, they get off yeah now we we call it on call we're like a doctor on call so if anybody we kind of spring into action um and so just this last year we had a company uh an individual couple whose company did extremely well they got to the end of the year and realized they needed to make some charitable gifts to kind of be where they needed to be from a tax standpoint they gives two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a donor advice fund from their company um, to make that work um and so what they needed was they needed the tax benefit this year. Well, a $250,000 gift, they didn't have a clue who they wanted to bless with that $250,000 gift because they were, I mean, they were making that decision just, you know, trying to get it done for the Pop end of the year. That's right. And so they made the gift to us. We basically hold it in the donor advice fund. And in that donor advice fund, then they just call up and tell us, okay, send this amount here, send that amount there, send that amount there, send that amount there. And they can do that over, you know, one dime. They can do it over 10 years. They can do it over two years. I mean, once again, they just, they advise. It's a donor advice fund. So what we're finding is that for members that have a tax consequence in a given year, it really works well. Another way, way that it works well, which once again, I said it's not the greatest benefit to, the, to our churches, is that if they wanted to give and people not know where it was coming from, they can basically give through that donor advice fund and they not be known as the one to make the gift, they can remain anonymous. And so I'll give you another example on that. We have another gentleman that we work with who owns medical offices all around the state of Georgia. He, he, he's not in the medical profession, he just owns medical office buildings and leases it out to those in the medical profession. His church is going through a capital campaign. They're trying to build about a five and a half million dollar building. And he, he said he woke up one morning, one night, middle of the night kind of thing, and the Lord said, you need to give a million dollars to that building campaign. Just, as clear as a bell. You know, he, like I said, Lord was already ahead of us on this. He's just looking for somebody to tell us how to do it. The problem was is that he, one, didn't want the church people to know where that million dollars came from. And two, he didn't want the church to receive it all at one time because he's afraid that it would negatively impact other people from participating. Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, but he had to have he had to make the gift when the property sold in that tax year for it to for it to all work out. And so basically we've been helping him. He's sold two of the office complex. He'll put that million dollars in a donor advice fund and the pledges for his capital campaign, he's, uh, the pledges for the capital campaign is running I think four years. He's gonna give $250,000 a year from his donor advice fund over the next four years and stagger it out uh, so that he hopefully doesn't negatively impact those that are giving in, in his church. So. It's that type of strategies that are out there for people that have tax events that we can help with. Um, one last one, is, and uh, I'll keep going, is that uh, you may have some people in your church that are extremely wealthy, and by that, you know, they're, they're in the multiple million dollar category. We don't have as many Baptists as we do regular folks, but we do have a few out there, to be honest with you. Well, for somebody that's, it, it, it really only makes sense for you to create your own family foundation if you're about $100 million in net worth or above. Mm. And, and the reason for that is that you gotta, you gotta pay somebody to file you know, a tax return, you gotta do all of this administrative stuff. And so really, I don't know if you've seen it lately, some of the folks that had their own family foundations are kinda 
unwinding those, and you're also forced to pay out 5% whether you know where you want that to go or not, if the government requires it. And so a donor advised fund can actually work, and we see this with some of our higher net worth, so thinking that kind of, really kind of two to $100 million category, um, we call it a, and this is kind of comical, we call it a poor man's family foundation. Now, I don't really think somebody with $2 million to $100 million is a poor man. <laughs> but, but they don't have, they're not the billionaire. You see what I'm saying? They're not the Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And so it allows them to basically operate a family foundation, especially if they've got a business. And we've even seen people give portions of their business into the donor advice fund. So if the business makes profit, that's where the income comes from for the donor advice fund to make gifts. And so once again, just know um, I'm working with a guy in Waycross that they set up years ago about a $2 million family foundation. Um, that where they made a, a gift of $2 million to a family foundation and he's finding that $2 million really it's more trouble than it's worth to run a family foundation with that few of assets that we're basically in the process of converting that to a donor advice fund which will operate like a quasi family foundation so um, once again just just some ways now let me let me show you something else just because I'm trying to get you thinking um, quickly on that donor advice fund mm -hmm. um, you have to make a decision as to you don't have to make a decision as to who or how the money is going to be distributed when you put it in the account immediately. You could make a decision two years later. Yeah. Of, of a new something that you've discovered that you mm -hmm. want to give to. Yeah. So it's but, just right. It's kind of like a giving fund that's just sitting there where the Lord leads you to, gotcha. to make a gift. Sure. Let me show you this other uh, this other kind of thing. So uh, if you can think of it this way, let me break it down here. You really you have different and diff people in your church in different financial positions. Okay, so you got those who are struggling. Okay, you got those that are kind of stable. You got those that are solid, and then those who are surging. And what I want you to kind of what your appetite for here is that to be honest with you. If you're in that solid or surging category, you may or may not need Dave Ramsey or Compass Ministry. You probably got your act together. You may even have an accountant doing your books for you. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I say your books, not just your taxes, I mean every check you write, almost like a... And what happens in our churches is that we, from a stewardship perspective, we spend most of our time and resources trying to help those who are struggling and stable with, from a spiritual standpoint, the guy who's solid and surging may have a bigger problem with his dependency on God. It's easier for a rich man to go through the vine needle you know, than to go yeah. to the kingdom of God. Yeah. He may have more spiritual challenges with his resources than what we, these folks do, but we're afraid of these people and we never talk to them and we never try to help them. Because mm -hmm. we're afraid that you know, either one, we, most of us in ministry in this tech category, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even more this way, you know, um, and so we, we feel intimidated by this group of people or maybe they're large contributors to the church and we don't want to mess up that relationship because you know if they go away then this becomes this for us you know um but the reality is is that though they're a handful we've got people in our churches that fall into these two categories that are not giving anybody giving them any kind of spiritual direction mm -hmm. or advice inside the local church and some of these strategies it's not so much to save them taxes as it is to help them if you got a guy that's in this surging category and God's given him the spiritual giftedness of generosity and we're not facilitating his ability to be generous, 
then we're really not being good stewards or good ministers of what God's placed us over, you know, of our flock. And you think about it this way, you know, we're fixing to enter into college football season. Mm -hmm. Every college team hopes to have a superstar. You know, now with that superstar, whether it be the quarterback, the running back, wide receiver, whatever it may be, are you going to put this person over here and just kind of let him do his own thing? Nope. You're going to work with that guy and make him as sharp as he can be because he's the one that can basically move the needle, so to speak. Mm -hmm. We don't do that in our churches. And, um, and, it's, and let me say this. It's not about the ability, and we sometimes do it, we, we don't do it because we feel guilty because we think we're trying to get their money. That's not what it's about. It's about the reality that they need just as equally much as discipleship in some of these areas and others. And what you will find is the people in those searching categories, unless they inherited the money, most of them did not get there without a trade-off. So I can't tell you of the number of men who are on their second wife, they don't have any relationship with their kids because they worked their tails off to get to that point. And now they've hit you know, the midlife crisis and they look back and they're like, yeah, I got all this money, but I really made no significance in my family and all those other things. And they're needing some spiritual guidance and some spiritual counsel. So that's my soapbox for the day. I'll get off of it and keep going. You got, uh, I don't know if you, you continue. I just took two thoughts that uh, I would be interested in some counsel on. Uh, two things that seem to be a hindrance that I run into, and I'm, I'm certainly young at all this. Uh, I'm a director of missions uh, for an area. Got about 50 churches in there, but um, I have one church in the association that had an endowment, mm -hmm. and that endowment has funded um, a lot of missions and things out of that church. And and of course, they're a very missions-minded church, and they give, they do a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so this financial model where this endowment has funded just tons of missions over the years. Right. And so, uh, and I stop and I think, well, that's brilliant. You know, I mm -hmm. I don't know a whole lot about all that, and I, I say, man, that's a great idea. Why aren't you know more churches? And I've run into the comment uh, around tables, and even the association actually has uh, a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, it would be great if we could do what they're doing, right. uh, because we have a you know a ten thousand dollar budget a year for missions, mm -hmm. and uh, that's dependent on giving every year and going out. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, they're giving ten thousand a year with no problem just on the interest of that. Sure, yeah. You know, and they're just perpetually funding you know missions, mm -hmm. and I thought, why are we doing that? And um, seems like a no-brainer. But around the tables, uh, there's a disposition of somehow this is, um, some, what is it, unspiritual? Mm -hmm. That it's, um, it's uh, like, you know, the, we're a nonprofit. God's money's supposed to come in. God's money's supposed to go out. Yeah. Uh, whatever's coming in needs to be going out immediately. And this idea of investing such that, you know, the interest would... It's like uh, they say things like, you know, we're not here to keep money. We're not here to hold on to God's money uh -huh. and this kind of thing. And so I'm, I run into this wall pretty regularly. I didn't realize that that wall existed because uh, to me, I'm young and I'm like, oh, well, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a disposition out there of that that is somehow being unfaithful. Mm -hmm. uh, you are holding on to something that's supposed to be going out. Right. We're not here to keep it. Um, you run into that, or do you have any, do. Um, any comment on that? Or is there, yeah. <coughs> you, uh, I mean, is that trying to just trying to change a culture, and that's too big for you to change? Kind of deal? No, I think it's ignorance to a certain degree. Uh, and I don't, that sounds kind of rude when I say that. Um, so let me ask you a question: How do we fund our churches? 
from a biblical standpoint, what's the model we use? Tithe. Okay. Right. So we basically fund our church from tithes and offerings, right? And where does that model come from? New Testament. Yeah. But even before that, Old Testament. Old Testament, right? Yeah. Because starts the Old Testament carries over the New Testament. Do you realize that there's a third piece out here nobody knows about? Well, we, we just we don't teach about it. If you look in the Scripture, Leviticus 30, uh, 25, 34. I'm pretty sure I got that right. Somebody pull it up, and make sure I'm telling you right. It's th- I'm pretty sure it's 25, 34. Maybe 24, 35. But I'm pretty sure it's 25, 34. I haven't got much, many paste, uh, verses in Leviticus memorized. I apologize. I know that y'all have memorized the whole book of Leviticus. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. There you go. Some people say, well, is there endowment in the Bible? Folks, there is endowment in the Old Testament all day long. Let me give you the background without giving the sermon. Okay? So, uh, and you can look at it in several places. Basically, here's the deal. God gave children of Israel, you know, the land of Israel. That passage you see, in, uh, so I've been doing a thing some time ago now, basically just really working through Joshua. Because the land is the inheritance, and we're in the kind of the inheritance business, so to speak. And so I just, you know, just kind of diving into that. But what I discovered, and I'm going to answer this, your question two, two ways, Billy. Uh, what I discovered is that most of the time we don't, we don't really pay attention to what's going on in Scripture. So, when Joshua divides the land after they've conquered it and gives it all the 12 tribes, what does he give the Levites? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Right. And how are the Levites supposed to be supported in Scripture? Tithes and offerings. Except for Leviticus 25-34. So, you know, if you read through Joshua and you, and you read through Leviticus and where Moses kind of maps all this out, you probably preached on the city of refuge and the other key cities there. Basically what happens is that in Leviticus, Moses instructs the children of Israel that when they divide out the inheritance, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to leave land around the city that even in the year of Jubilee can't be sold and it's a you know, perpetual possession. It's an endowment for the priests. So the reality is, is that the Levites, the church in the Old Testament is where we get that model, is funded primarily from tithes and offerings, but they also have the land as an endowment to keep them going. And nobody ever sees that that piece of it. So from my perspective, when you say what's God's way for funding ministry for the local church level, I think it's all three rather than just these two. And nobody ever talks about the third one. Um, and, and there's reasons they think it'll hurt giving, there's all those other things. So. Uh, I told you I was going to answer two ways. That's first my biblical answer to it. Now let me give you a practical answer to it. So I was fortunate enough that uh, so I, I pastored for about nine years before I came to work for the foundation. I had started my doctorate work at the Billy Graham School of Southern as a pastor in that leadership track, basically in the School of Missions Church Growth Evangelism. About the time I finished my coursework and started my actual project is when I came to work for the foundation the first time. And so, basically, they allowed me at the school to transition uh, what my project was going to be to something that was more foundation-related. 
So basically, my DMIN project was research on churches that have large endowments and the impact that large endowment has on churches. So, um, so when you say, have I come across all that? Yes, and I've tried to look at it. So let me give you two things, uh, what I discovered in that. So churches that have a million dollars in endowment or above was basically the essence of my study. I found three things to be the case. The first thing is that if the endowment supports more than 15% of the operating budget, then you've got the opportunity for it to impact your giving. But if it's less than 15%, you really don't have that issue. And so when I'm counseling churches on building their endowment, I think it should be. Now, once again, go back to this. you got your tithes, your offerings, and your endowment. What I'm basically trying to say is this shouldn't be more than 15% of how you run the church. 85% of it should be here, which is basically what you see in Scripture. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing, there's actually three. The second thing is that there's got to be a stewardship education in the church. So they got to understand, this is, this is not your money, it's God's money. Mm. And it doesn't matter if we've got a budget of $100,000 or we've got a budget of $100 million. It doesn't matter how much. Your giving is not based off of how much we have. Your giving is based off the fact that you're a steward of what God's given you. And there's some principles in God's Word that you adhere to regardless of what our budget is or how much money we have. And if you don't adhere to those principles, then you're not really being faithful to the Lord as you should be. So there's got to be that education piece that takes place. The third is this. is vision. So if the church has a lot of money and they're not doing a lot of, with it, then people are not motivated to give because they feel like it's a waste of their money. And so the church has got to be actively have a vision to reach the world, reach its community, be involved. But if the church will have a vision and be on fire for the Lord to reach its community of the world, they'll teach stewardship education and they'll make sure that they're kind of limited to about 15%. You won't have any problems with it impacting getting negative impact. Kind of mm -hmm. and, and people say, try to understand it this way. Um, this is one way that I kind of think of it. You know, if you'd asked Billy Graham uh, before he passed away if he'd done all he could do, my guess is he could have told you he would have told you he wish he could have done more. You know, mm -hmm. or you know, or if you ever seen Schindler's List and that famous scene where the guy, you know, takes off his ring and other things says I could have bought one more. You know, it's that mm -hmm. once you've got that vision to reach people for the lost, it's not a scarcity of resources it's an abundance of resources mentality to where you say I'm gonna do everything I can well if you've got the vision and the education piece going on then your people don't look at that endowment as a crutch they look at it as an opportunity to do more for the kingdom but you got to have that vision piece in there so that's my two cents worth or three dollars worth on that Casting vision, that's right. yeah. that's good. all right let me let me keep going because we got a couple other things here that are quite interesting um, I do want you to see so let me, let me just briefly say, because I could show you, but it, for the sake of time, I'm not going to. With the donor advised fund, we've got the, basically the technology for somebody to go in, set up a donor advised fund account, then they've got their own online access to a portal to where they can go in and just basically type in and tell us what ministry they want to send it to, and they can set that up to be a you know, one-time gift, reoccurring gift. You know, they can basically handle the contributions and expenditures out of their own fund, so to speak, uh, online, they don't even have to call us. They can, you know, do it at their computer if they choose to. If they want to call us, that's fine. But we do have that technology to do that. All right, let's talk about another thing. So I've, I've talked a lot about stock and capital appreciation. Um, one of the things that we want to make sure that you're aware of is that we basically make available to our churches and other ministries uh, stock transfer gifts 
uh, at really no cost except for what it, our broker charges us, which is pretty, pretty, pretty discounted. And so what that means is you may have a person in your church that has appreciated stock, let's just say like Aflac. But in this case, they want to give it rather than give it and receive income. Well, for them to give that stock out of their brokerage account, for your church to turn that into cash to be able to use for ministry, you got to have a brokerage account, you got to work with their broker, you got to do all that. We do all that for all our churches at no cost except for that brokerage fee. So most of our churches in Georgia are small enough that it doesn't make sense for them to have a brokerage account open consistently. Um, so you don't have to do that. You don't have to pay the fees for a brokerage account. You don't have to keep up with all that. All you got to do is just connect us with the donor. We'll make sure that the transaction happens. Once it's cleared and it's sold, it's turned to cash, we'll cut you a check for your, for your ministry. And we're, see, we probably are to the point now we're processing three or four of these a month for our churches. And we're finding people, uh, I mean, anywhere from $2,000 to $200,000 worth of stock. And, and the funny thing that's been most interesting to me is some of the larger gifts have not been towards projects. You know, you think of $200,000, it's going to a building fund or it's going to a bus or it's going to, you know, some kind of, it, we're just finding that they, once again, feel like the Lord's laid that on their heart to give to the church. Stock's gone up. And especially with the stock market running like it has the last 10 years or so, what they're finding is, you know, some people say, well, once it gets to this point, I'm going to sell and bring it back down to here and shift this over and then let it grow and then shift it over and let it grow and shift it over. But what I'm finding is that it's growing. They're shifting it over, but not to another more secure investment. They're shifting it over to the church, letting it grow again and shifting it. So if you, for instance, if that stock's worth $100,000, when it hits $125,000, they're giving $25,000 of it away, letting it grow again. And we're, we're finding that happen year after year. So we basically, I will show you this, um, actually before I get to it, if it's not already gone out, because I've been gone a few days, it's going to go out here in the next week or so, uh, all of our churches will be should be receiving uh, this mailer. It's like a postcard. This is like two sides of the postcard. You'll see it. And one side just talks about our fund management stuff we were talking about earlier. But then this is basically the instructions for uh, how to make a stock gift and us help you. And what we've done is basically you see here, you know, foundation receive securities or give securities. The receive securities is all the information that the financial secretary needs to know to basically know how to help that. If a person were to come to you or come to the church and say, we want to make a stock gift, here's information for them. The next one here is all the information that the individual needs to know. Uh, and we've already pre-populated where they can say what the stock is, what the number of shares are, all that kind of stuff. It prints out the form that they take then to their broker dealer with instructions on how to make the BTC transfer. But we've tried to automate that process to make it as simple and as easy as we possibly can. And all of that's found on our website. I'll, um